Hello everyone, welcome back to the Early Education Show. We're up to episode 40. It's great to be back with you. I'm Liam McNicholas and I'm an early childhood teacher working in operations and I'm joined as I am each and every week uh, by Lisa Bryant, a writer, consultant and advocate. Hey Lisa. Hello Liam, how are you? I'm very well and I'm also joined by Leanne who's a leadership and policy expert. Hi Leanne. Hello, Liam. We're back. It's another nice big round number. They always sound like such important episodes, don't they? Episode 40. It's so exciting. 40 is so mature, isn't I it? I know. Life begin- podcasts yeah, begin at 40. It's older than Liam and younger <laughs> than you and I. <laughs> <laughs> how, That's how, why it's a great number. We're probably not, we're probably not going to disclose how, how many episodes that'll be the case for, will we? What's the range of... No, the, no, no. We're not going to expose that. Um, so, yes, now we will crack on with the, the news list. Uh, what I want to just tell everyone before uh, we go into that, though, is to hang around till after our recommendations this week because we do have a special announcement regarding a competition that we forced Lisa into last week, which is actually going ahead. So make sure you stick through our uh, main topic for tonight and then after the recommendations for details of how to be part of that. But we'll start with our news list. We've got a pretty quick one uh, this week. Um, I'm going to bring the first one, which is a story from Victoria about early childhood centres that are having outdoor spaces indoors and have waivers in place to meet their outdoor requirements for indoors. Um, And I probably mostly put this up just to provoke Lisa because I know she's got lots of... uh, particular thoughts I on this. Sure do. <laughs> so full disclosure, I'm I'm battling a hideous case of man flu this week and we'll try to do as, as little talking as possible. So having had that there as your provocation, Lisa, and, and have at it. What do you reckon about this? <laughs> yeah. I look I have really strong feelings about outdoor place you know, places uh, services that have been approved with um, what's the official term with, um, oh, my God, I've been writing about this all day. <laughs> minimum minimum outdoor <laughs> space requirement? Sorry, say it again. The, the minimum outdoor space requirement? No, it's it's with, oh, what is it? Uh, you know, when they're allowed to have indoor space that... Exemption. that oh, a waiver an or an exemption. A waiver. It's not a waiver, a substitute. <laughs> okay, this is not good. This is not good podcast. <laughs> We're stuck on the first item of the news list. <laughs> Simulated outdoor environment. Simulated outdoor environment. Ah, right. Honestly, if you knew how many times I'd hoped that phrase. It's kind of like this is a simula- simulated professional podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, yeah. So, yeah, I've actually been to a lot of services recently with simulated outdoor environments. And there's two ways that you can do it. One is you take an indoor space and you make it somewhere where children can practice gross motor skills because essentially that's one of the main things they do in the outdoor environment. It's not the only thing, you know, like um, there's also access to natural environments, which people tell me are really important, access to fresh air and sunshine and stuff like that. But essentially it's just giving people space, you know, and that's um, giving children space and that's what's important about an outdoor environment. So with simulated ones, a lot of the regulatory authorities try to get people to literally simulate an outdoor space. So they've got to have 
lots of living things, plants, etc. inside. They've got to have sand pits. They've got to have uneven surfaces. They've got to have rocks. They've got to have tree stumps, that kind of thing. And some surfaces have done this really well and other surfaces have done this really, really badly. Some surfaces do things like, you know, hanging gardens that you get, um, you know, on the outside of buildings and sometimes inside nowadays where um, basically you've got a lot of vegetation on a vertical surface. Mm-hmm. Some surfaces ver- do I this- think that's called a vertical garden, isn't it? A vertical garden. Okay, yeah. good. Someone's still got their words. Um, a lot of services are now doing that with plastic plants. Instead of having real, you know, um, oh. you know, real things inside, they've got things like tree stumps with sawdust around them to simulate, you know, real trees. They've all obviously got fake grass inside them, et cetera, et cetera. And so my concerns is that the whole idea of simulated outdoor space has meant creating fake outdoor space indoors and I don't think that's a good thing for children. So so not only have we got indoors, outdoors, indoors, we've got fake outdoors, indoors. (laughs) So is the next thing fake indoors, indoors? Or fake indoors, outdoors? Close to that with some services. Have you seen that some services are now styled the same way as you might style an Airbnb or an Ikea photo shoot? Yes. Mm. Well, I call that the fake indoors, indoors. Mm-hmm. So my only, mm. my only two points I wanted to raise with this was, um, I mean, the, the regulation's there for a reason. So there's obviously an acknowledgement as part of the development of the National Quality Framework that outdoor space is uh, a requirement. So having So waiving that requirement, I think, is interesting. And I can only assume that is a response to... Uh, accessibility issues so they're approving these services given public demand for more spaces um my only potential and and then look at just to be clear I, I'm, I'm not defending this at all i think it's it is a bit kind of uh, it'll be ridiculous but is part of it um an issue with inner city centers where there just isn't capacity for outdoor space do we think there do we think that gives any leeway for these kind of centers to operate at all in this in this fashion yeah, and I think that that's a really good and reasonable reason. You know, um, the City of Sydney has approved, well, the Department of Education in New South Wales has approved, you know, probably over 20 of these services in the City of Sydney where clearly there is a demand for childcare, um, both for residents who live in the City of Sydney, live in high-rise apartments in the City of Sydney, but also <clears throat> who um, work in the city of Sydney and want to bring their children in with them. So there is a lot of demand for it, but the question is is whether when some of the children that use these centres are children that also live in the city of Sydney, in high-rise, in apartments, they're the ones that are most likely to not get access to a natural environment. And is it good that they both live and go to services in this area? Some of the services do amazing things, you know, with excursions, et cetera, into local areas. Um, I heard really good things about the Barangaroo Centre, which is run by Guardian Childcare 
um, in uh, the city area, which is a high-rise kind of childcare centre, but they go out into Barangaroo, the um, park, on a regular basis. And other ones, you know, one I went to in Melbourne takes their children out to a range of local parks, so they are getting access to natural environments, but other ones just are really not quite managing it well. Yeah. All right. Well, um, the item, the next item on the news list, which you're bringing us, Lisa, probably flows on quite nicely from that first one. It's about uh, children sort of not getting enough uh, physical activity. Did you want to take us through this one? Yeah, look, I won't say much on this because I feel like I've spoken far too much this podcast already. But um, uh, basically a Perth study where they attached movement sensors to children in, um, you know, in early education care services showed that 30% of the 1,200 children they surveyed from the ages of two to five um, achieved the national guidelines of three hours of activity a day and the rest of the children didn't. And surprisingly, it was worse for girls. So girls were less active than boys in childcare or in home environments everywhere that this was done. And, um, you know, it, it just um, it shows that children aren't moving enough. You know, so I think that's connected with the they're not moving because they've got simulated outdoor spaces. Yeah, and it's important to yeah. I think there's oh sorry, I was going to say I think that it's the it's a combination because it's not necessarily the outdoor uh, spaces that are simulated. It's also the engagement of educators in yeah. Um, you know, physical play that is uh, in challenging children and encouraging them, and that that does require a quite a lot of energy, and is that a component of it as well? Yeah, now that's pretty much exactly what I was going to say, Leanne, and then then that's why it's actually a specific element of the national quality standard. I'm not going to be able to show off remember exactly which one it is, but it's in standard 2.2, I'm pretty sure, where it talks about um, specifically planning for uh, children to engage in physical activity. And that's the reason that's there, because I guess we know it's um, it's it's particularly important for learning and well-being. But it's important to remember for educators, it is actually a, a specific requirement of the national quality standard. So it's, uh, that's worrying. That's the statistics I get if we're not meeting that um, minimum standard according to the study. Mm. Yeah. So we, we should, a good good opportunity to remind everyone if they haven't listened yet of our episode on the new quality area too, which I think is episode thirty seven. So go back and listen to that if you haven't yet. And we've got to do number three soon. So. Yeah, no, I think we I think we promised to have that done by the end of the year, and we've only done two so far. So we've <laughs> we've we've got some work to do. We'll we'll be back with that one. We promise. Um, Leanne, I think you've got the next one, which is uh, a story. Uh, just about, I guess, the, the early childhood system not working, which uh, is, I guess is a regular theme for, for this podcast. But did you want to tell us about this specific story? Well, I think this is a, it's kind of a curious one. But I, I mean, I do always like it when people who are well known get together and speak out about particular issues, because I think they do bring a voice to um to an issue. So I have to say that for a start and it's got, you know, some of some people in this article who are who are well known um, amongst them Quentin Bryce who did sort of lead the quality charge with the National Childcare Accreditation Council and then some personalities. I just 
I can't believe that we weren't there, Lisa. That's because it's called Some of Australia's Most Successful Women Want Change Now. So I was surprised that we weren't in the article. Neither was um, surprised. <laughs> but I, I also, it, it just grates on me a little bit when people get dressed up in fancy outfits and then they become, you know, voices for a particular issue. But it, I think the frustration is that there's this call for an improvement in childcare and the call is made by Australia's most successful women when the call for the change in childcare is being made by lots and lots of people across Australia who are not wearing fancy outfits. So I think there's just something that grates on me in this. In this, however, that me more than that it's, is that why, when you ask women to give an opinion on something, do you also have to dress them up in fancy outfits? I, it and does. Why do you it, need to put Quentin Bryce in a cream suit when she's never worn a cream suit in her life? No, that's not true. <laughs> she does wear a lot of cream suits, but. I feel so unqualified to comment on this. She wears much more brighter colours than that. But I think it is, I agree, it is this sense of, okay, we're going to talk about this, it's a really important issue, and the distraction there are these outfits. But anyway, it must have been for some sort of fashion shoot or whatever. No, they got them in and then said, oh, you're women, you've got to look pretty on our online and... (laughs) On our paper, well, so therefore we will call but, in people to put makeup and pretty clothes on you. But how else are you going to know if they're women of calibre or not? <sighs> That's why we weren't True. invited, Leanne. That's right, yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll do some sort of live show with us in those outfits, and you too, Liam, as well. Absolutely. <laughs> I, could, I could pull off the cream one for sure. Cream. So I've got red hair. Yeah, Liam hasn't got cream skin. You'll have to wear a red dress, Liam. <laughs> but I, I, I'm honestly all for people who have profile to do these things. I appreciate that. I totally appreciate that. I just am, you know, a, a bit frustrated by it, I suppose. Radio. Yes, I can understand that. Yes, that will, that's obviously one that's worth clicking on the link and, and and having a look at the image we're talking about. But um, Lisa, you've got the last one for us, which is um, this is a bit of a first for us. I think this is the first time we've linked to the Northern Territory news. Is it is it about is it about crocodiles <laughs> yeah, at all? But, no, it's oh, not. And, and it's fine. It, it's actually the attachment to Leanne's article, so it went through all of News Limited. So it's also in the Tasmanian Mercury, etc. But it basically is, other than talking to, um, you know, uh, famous women about it, it's going through, you know, what um, what people are actually saying. And the, the fact that I found interesting about it is they're saying that close to a third of people are paying double their grocery bills for childcare and some of them are actually paying more than or equal to their mortgage. And I thought, we just kind of need to th- stop and think, you know, like is, that, like is that out of control that you're paying someone to look after one or two children and you're paying more than food for that or the equivalent for your housing? Like 
it seems to the people that have written this art, these articles as if that's an outrageous thing. But I don't know. Mm. I think looking after children is kind of an important thing and maybe as important as buying food. Mm. Yeah, I'm I mean, there, like I think that. there's two components to that, isn't there? It's, um, did you like that? Did you like what I did there? Two components. I saw there that, things. Leanne. <laughs> uh, the, the first one is that. Have you thought of your second one yet? Though? Yes, I have. I've actually got to. There, there are the, the the problem is that it is too expensive. Um, in terms of it, it's it is very expensive. Sorry, looking after quality costs money. So that's one one point, and I agree with you. Um, with regard to that, Lisa, but the second is I think the call is for it to be more heavily subsidised and to or to be tax deductible or whatever. So I think that it's it does bring forward those important points about quality costs money and, yeah, it probably should cost exactly what you're saying, a bit more than your food because it's your child. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure the Jobs for Families package will fix all that anyway, so it yeah. should be fun. <laughs> yeah, sure. Do we have some music for that? We should. Package yet? I keep forgetting to do our additional audio, but that's all right. Um, so we'll bring you some more news next week, but we'll we'll move on to the main part of the episode, which is an interview that Leanne you conducted with Kate Washington. Do you want to uh, give us a little bit of an intro to that before we head into it? Yeah, so um, Kate Washington is the shadow for um, shadow minister for early childhood education, and oh, and also for the Hunter region in New South Wales. And uh, I spoke with Kate. It was actually the day after the New South Wales Labor conference, so she was pretty exhausted, but she was wonderful and gave me uh, a lot of time. Um, and talks about Labor's thinking on early childhood education and policy. I guess I was a bit disappointed in that, um, not with Kate, obviously, but with the with the fact that the New South Wales Labor Conference didn't really have a big focus on early childhood. They had one in 2016, and it was almost like a central platform of their their discussions and their policy proposals. And it was very silent uh, at the well. Look, wasn't silent. There was plenty of talk about it, but it didn't have that presence in the conference and I did ask Kate about that throughout the interviews so people can listen and and hear what she says about that Um, but I would have loved to have seen the continuity of that talk about policy because when it hasn't been achieved it hasn't been achieved and not that Labor is in charge of achieving that but maybe in in pushing forward on policy so people can listen to that um interview and and hear and also think about uh, the call that Kate makes at the end if you are keen to give her any policy thinking or policy ideas. Absolutely. So thanks for doing that, Leanne. So we'll take a quick musical break and be back with that interview uh, in just a minute. Stay with us. Well, I'm sitting here with Kate Washington. It's raining outside. Actually, it's pouring outside, which is a good thing. Oh, and, it wasn't, and it wasn't <laughs> when I arrived this morning. No, it wasn't. But um, Kate is uh, responsible for early childhood education in, in the um, shadow position and also for the hunter and is also a member for Port Stephens. 
So she has a fairly busy agenda and has had an extremely busy agenda over the weekend with the New South Wales Labor Conference and is kind enough to give me a few minutes today. <laughs> so I greatly appreciate that to talk to the Early Education Show. It's my absolute pleasure. Thanks for giving us this time. And I guess I wanted to start with, um, with the Labor Conference, which happened on the weekend. And last year, I think one of the things that we were pretty excited about was that early childhood education formed a bit of a centrepiece for um, policy in New South Wales, for, for proposed policy from Labor. And I have to say, I didn't see much media on it over the weekend to say that early childhood might still be the centrepiece policy, but uh, I'm interested to know where early childhood was kind of talked about at the conference and what position it holds at the moment in the policy agenda. Well... Leon, as, as you say, last year it was it was front and centre, and it was um, which was really exciting because he, because it showed that it was something that Luke Foley sees as core to our policy formulation going forward. So, in the Labor side of the fence, we see education as our heartland and as something that we are deeply passionate about and at a federal level we're fighting for additional Gonski funding at the state level where we're trying to fight the, the decimation of TAFE mm. um, and, and, and then in our schools we're, we're, we're seeing over capacity, we're seeing backlog in maintenance funding and all sorts of things so we're formulating our policy around all of those and I just see that the with Luke coming out last year so strongly in terms of early childhood education, it's it's in some ways it's there and it's continuing to be there, but we're building on in all these other aspects, especially as the as the landscape keeps changing. So um, what we're the the focus is going across the board on all in all levels of the education discussion, whilst knowing that the at the core of it, we know that early childhood education is still really critical in that mix. So what what are the, I guess, what are the policy principles at this stage in terms of early childhood? Well, <laughs> it's from a practical sense, it's really challenging in opposition. So you don't... You can promise anything. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm also not... I'm also very... Um, I, I, I sit on the... Sit on, the side and you and you hear all these having, having had promises made in the past that haven't been kept mm. and i i'm not i don't want to be that person and i'm and i and i vow to not be that person to say that yes we'll deliver all these marvelous things if we are elected and then you get in there and you don't deliver so that i just think that's just i i think at its at its most basic the role that we should be playing is is some people that tell the truth and, um, and, you know, have some authenticity and integrity. Because if you haven't got that, you've got nothing. So there's no, there's no um, wild promises that's going to be made today. You might be disappointed. <laughs> but um, We'll take anything. Really. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what, we, what we're bringing is a lens that is different to... Well, we're, we're seeing what's happening and the landscape, just in early childhood education itself, is changing a lot. Um, so if we were to form government in 2019, the last thing we want to be doing is making preschools um, providers and services turn themselves inside out again because we've got some grand plan to do something different. 
and, I, and speaking to providers around the place, that's not something that they could even stomach, mm. um, given all that they've been through recently and that they continue to. Um, but what was exciting from the conference, and my eyes are a little bit <laughs> falling out of my head, but, um, but it was really exciting to see that early childhood education is um, high in the mind of the Labor Party membership. Mm-hmm. So there were motions that were um, that were put up and supported through um, at the conference over the weekend that came from um, all sorts of different areas across New South Wales, talking about the importance of early childhood education and around the different aspects of it too, um, both in terms of ensuring that it's accessible and affordable. Um, there was motions in relation to um, Aboriginal access mm. and the importance of Aboriginal access to early childhood education. Um, professional development was another aspect, and of course, um, pay and and for early childhood workers, teachers, educators. So all of those areas covering the gamut um, were were canvassed and coming from all sorts of areas, which was really good. And I know, I know one of the motions from, I'm a country Labor member, and one of those motions was very strong from Country Labor Conference last year. So it, it's really, that was really good to see. So it's part of the conversation, those motions are being put forward. So then what kind of happens with those, you know, what, what I mean, it, we can see that those things are present, they're present in people's minds. Something we were talking about last last week on the show was that we're always seeing um, articles that are saying, you know, it's so important and here's yes. the evidence and all yes. of those things, but we never actually see that progress to action. And I think that's one of the frustrations for mm. everybody who's involved in early childhood education. So how do, how do those motions move to become active commitments well they become labor party policy and in some um in some of them it actually becomes part of our platform there were platform amendments made around early childhood education over the weekend so then as a um the shadow minister responsible for implementation of those policies they now become my rocks that I can build on mm. so it's really that's uh, it's, it's exciting to see membership doing that so that that can now be I can I can hold that out and say we've actually got to be doing this we've got to be taking steps to um, having equal pay we we are now obliged to be doing this mm. I mean not that not that we not that I necessarily needed that <laughs> but to be able to have that as our um as our driving force and and justification, if you like, not the well, you need the support the, of the membership for sure. You correct, need, correct. Yes. You can't. I mean, it's great to say this is really important, and we all know it's really important. But for for it to be coming up through our ranks and the and the membership, that's really um, it's really helpful to me mm. as a shadow minister to now have that additional support to be able to continue to formulate what we what we hope to bring and put on the table before 2019 election. So what were those platform amendments that were that will be made? Searches, searches. Looks over my shoulder. <laughs> <laughs> well, obviously the pay must have been 
one of those because that's what you mentioned. So yes, so I can't remember. So why I'm looking over my shoulder is I can't quite recall which is platform, what was policy, and and where it all fell. Yeah. But it did cover the gamut of of what I saw were the crucial issues going on at the moment. Yeah. Um, and essentially, you know, it comes down to funding, like <laughs> always. <laughs> like, or who's going to pay? Who's going to pay for it? Yeah, well, that's what it always comes back to. Well, there's there's not many places you can hide. Like mm. it's the state government pa- funds preschools, mm. so the state. Can you just say that again? Yeah. <laughs> what does the state government do? It... Well, apparently, I'm told it 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 looks after preschools, mm. but what they're looking after is is perhaps different in different people's eyes. Well, historically, yes, that's. That, I mean, over all the years that, that I've been involved in early childhood, the state took that responsibility for early childhood education and constitutionally that's where it sits as well. So Indeed. depending on, on sort of what, what you consider. And then in the past has taken uh, care of it in New South Wales in preschools and long day care centres and, and all of those settings for early childhood. Mm. But it is has been you know pulled back over the years more and more. So we're seeing much reduced... Funding, mm. depending on how you market it. Mm. I know when you look at, I think, I think in New South Wales we're sitting at two point nine percent of the education budget. Is is is, is it that? Is it that high? <laughs> it's pretty. Yes, I think it's going to mm. preschooling in its various settings. Mm. Um, you know, and when you compare that to the other states, I think um, South Australia somebody's sitting at seven point nine percent. Like it's. Like we're less than half of others mm. in terms of just the cut of the whole education pie, um, in terms of state funding. So that's a that's a that's a big issue. Well, when you consider what the bang for your buck is in terms oh. of your of your of your inputs, uh, that's yes. Now, it seems that there's a a real sort of difficulty in that translating then yes to policy. Indeed, and there lies there lies the challenge. Um, and and I guess half the, the battle is often, as I can see, is is putting a value on it. Like you nearly have to put a value proposition, and you can say, you know, every dollar you spent here is worth, you know, five dollars or seven dollars or whoever you, the academic you you rely on. But it's that. But but then you you know everyone knows that it's that investing in the early years is so important. But as you say, it's not translating in the market to practical mm. funding that would make a change. And mm. so that's that's where that's where it sits. And you know, we uh, like you and, and and within the sector and the services that I visit, there's that it's the frustration's palpable because everyone knows how they can spend their money better. They know what they could do. Um, if they had more money, and all they want to do is be able to do that, <laughs> which is like, yeah, I think I, I think that's a great point because I think at times it's been considered to be, um, uh, you know, the the idea that the the sector achieves some sort of a level of funding and that they're going to be wasting that or mm. or be careless with that when mm. really in every early childhood setting regardless of, of what it is there is general generally not waste there is uh-huh. general commitment to you know 
going over and above the regulations where it's possible, but it's really, really difficult. And it's, it's, I, 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 the services I visit have to be some of the most thrifty businesses mm. that, I, that I see, like, because each one of them you know, is, in essence, a small business, and they're having to do so much with so little. And so it's um, the exercises in, <laughs> in thrift everywhere, um, and, in some, and in some cases just uh, too much when you're having to ask parents to bring in their own to- the, you know, toilet paper for the services and things. I mean, there's, that's a real issue. And with the Start Strong funding, it, it just it, it doesn't seem, this doesn't seem to be enough. Um, there seems to be some absurd results that are coming out of it as well, where um, you probably no doubt aware where you've got some services that might have more children, but they're getting less funding because they just sit above the safety net, mm. and 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 that's an absurd result. It, yeah, and I think the the only I mean the only answer really is to actually fully fund Good, early yeah. childhood yeah. education. <laughs> there's only so, so much there's only so much business um, support and all of that that can be offered when you're just talking about when really the problem is there's just not enough. Well, I think that's one of the challenges that people have felt is and frustrations is that there is business support offered and that's all. Yeah. Cool. I mean, hats off to to those organisations that offer that and, and, you know, that's been the strategy. But so many directors will, t- will actually demonstrate that they are fully functioning small business managers along with their committees or along with their broader auspicing organisations do an amazing job. Yes, and, have it, and, and really the problem is not them. No, it's, you just can't <laughs> do more with less. Absolutely. Mm, yes. Yes. So would, would Labor ever see like fully funding early childhood education or, you know, making it at a, a terrifically low fee so that all families could... It's not out of the question in terms of um, moral responsibility for a, for for a, a Labor, government to do that. And particularly, particularly a, a Labor, Labor government. government. Yes. It is certainly something that, I, I mean, I would dearly like to see it. So, and I... Because I know... I know how, I mean, we all know how important it is, but I think that there's so much room for improvement from where we are and we need, we need to be making a fairly bold move because, it, because, because our kids deserve it. It's not, it's not to say how good are we, but it's just because that's where we need to go for our kids. We don't, like, instead we're seeing, you know, these arbitrary lines put on kids doing a unite nap plan and asking them to jump a jump a, a rope of a certain height when it's when they've it's too late by then like establishing and putting money into that is just to me makes so little sense when we should be investing more to support the kids going into the system and to make sure that they've got all the intervention and supports that they need before they hit the hit kindergarten. Mm. I mean, if you speak to any of the school principals, one of their biggest issues is the preparedness of the children that are coming to the school. Mm-hmm. And the school's preparedness for the children that they... Oh. You know, I, I think it's, it's also um, in terms of early childhood education, which is very progressive and innovative, and then... Mm. You know, there there is this kind of very narrow focus quite often for schools in terms of what they 
want to see children having when they come to them. True. And um, I think there's a lot of work mm. that can be done in that mm. in that context as well. Yes. Which is, you know, an, an ongoing discussion for every early childhood setting and the way that they yes. interact with their... There's some fantastic transition to school yes. programs. But it's, you know, this testing regime, all of those things is a whole other discussion <laughs> that we could probably talk for hours yeah. about. Yeah. Um, I know. It's like, how many times can we test our kids in there? <laughs> yes, yes, and it's From not necessary. <laughs> yes, indeed. It's not going to result in a create, creative and brave future, if unfortunately. Set, if we set the bar really high, the kids are all... <laughs> it's not going to make them get there. Yes. They, they need a little bit of help getting there. Yes. So one of your jobs is to kind of keep... Um, the New South Wales government honest in terms of what it is actually doing in early childhood education. That's one of the, the great delights but also the great <laughs> pressures in being in opposition. What yes. sorts of things are you asking um, the government about the sorts of programs that they're putting out there um, and the sort of questions that you're asking in estimates as well? Well, we... It's... We, 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 in estimates, we... we, we which is in a few weeks' time, and we're, we want to be looking at, well, basically the spend and whether or not commitments are being kept. Mm -hmm. So when we've had monies budgeted but not spent for years on end, um, so we were, we were, I think the Auditor-General recognised $350 million at the last time. That's right. Yeah. Uh, and then that didn't include an additional $15 million that came after that. So at one point, that was a ridiculous underspend, like... I don't know how anyone in the sector just kept their hair in because it would have just been awful to hear that, you know, they're, they're, they're doing so much with so little and the government is sitting on $365 million in their coffers. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a lot of it wasn't theirs. A lot of it was from the feds and it just hadn't been passed on to the sector. I mean, that's really galling. So that's to... Uh, there's, there's more flow, it seems, now under the Start Strong model it's still not the amount that was underspent. So we've got to try and examine that all the time and, um, and, and really to make sure that monies that are budgeted and monies that we are getting from the feds are actually being passed onto the sector. Mm -hmm. So that's a, that's a basic. But there's also questions around, um, well, their own efficiencies and things that they... The policies that they are implementing... For example, around the um, the training for um, management of services that's just been announced, if they're going to make everyone who has responsibility or management of a new or existing service go to Sydney for training, there's something wrong with that. Yeah, you know, living in a regional community and having been a parent on a pa on a on a um, on a preschool committee, there's no way I could have done that. And so we're going, community preschools, particularly in the regions, are going to struggle with a policy that is saying that. So we want to examine those sorts of things. Um, professional development is another one. What are they putting on the table for professional development? Um, fees. Are they tracking fees? Because last time I checked, they didn't know what fees services had. So if they're asking for, if their intent is to make preschools more affordable they need to know what's being charged at the end mm. and at this stage we I couldn't 
uh, we asked a question on notice and there was no they, they didn't seem to know what fees preschools were offering before the Start Strong model was implemented. Mm. So if that's just a bit surprising because it should have been in their data. But anyway. it, 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 wasn't, it wasn't certainly something that they were going to make available to me or I, it was just, I don't know, it was, it was quite odd. So um, we've, we've, yeah, there's a, a few things that are open for examination. Another thing... Um, is the commitment around out-of-school hours care. Mm -hmm. Those places were... There was a commitment prior to the 2015 election to create 45,000 additional places. The Auditor-General's been very scathing of that implementation. We're now on our third third iteration, I think, of the grant funding that's being offered to providers to expand or create new services. Um, The the pressure is, in the community, there just aren't enough places. Mm -hmm. And so I know even in Port Stephens recently, the, the um, council is saying, is putting the call out for more family daycare providers to go into the out-of-school hours care space. There's just not enough. Yeah. And particularly families in your um, electorate that would be travelling to Sydney need a, a longer day anyway. Oh, so, yeah. absolutely. Like Central Coast. Goodness mm. me, we looked at some of the stats in terms of access to out-of-school hours care versus the numbers of children mm. in um, school, in the primary school. And it was just, the, the, it was staggering mm. how few places there were for out-of-school hours care in Central Coast. And as you say, a lot of those families are commuting and, and for a long time to get to Sydney. And mm. um, yeah, there's a lot of families, um, when I put, when I was asking in different um, areas, how they were, where their pressure points were, it was around that out-of-school hours care. Mm. So that's something that the government needs a little bit more of a poke on. So you, that's a nice long list of things that you'll be, <laughs> that you'll be asking. And, and the frustrating thing in budget estimates is it's a really limited space yeah, of time. Yeah, not, not enough time. There's to, not nearly enough time. But that's great. I think you've hit all of the, the high points of um, the, the things that services would be um, definitely asking and, and wanting some answers on. Well, I would so, hope so. If there's yeah. others that services might like to be asked, <laughs> they, they, they should, let they you should know. get in touch. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I know you spend quite a bit of time in services. That's the wonderful thing about um, uh, ministers and shadows in early childhood is that they do spend a lot of time in, in settings and spending. Mm. What are some of the inspiring services that you've visited and, and I've, enjoyed? I've been to towns I didn't know that, that they existed. It was, <laughs> you know, even having lived and grown up in regional New South Wales, so I grew up in the Riverina and obviously now I'm in Port Stephens, but um, like I, I was um, I went to a place called Captain's Flat. Oh, yes, yep. And, I, I, and, I, and admittedly we were driving in there quite later in the evening and the, and the wonderful women that have made that preschool survive um, met us after hours and it was <laughs> it was it was really lovely but to hear their story of survival um, because they were uh, they were they left a group that was operating in Queenbee and Queenbee and preschools was operating a few different um, services and captains flat because it wasn't getting the enrolments they needed was dragging down the the capacity of the overarching body to attract funding mm-hmm. under the Start Strong model. So they were, they were, um, they left. Um, and the risk was that they wouldn't survive. 
but they, as a community, have, have rallied together and done what small communities do best and have navigated a path to survival and not just survival, they're thriving, okay. um, you know, increasing children's, the numbers of children there and, um, and it's really, it's good. It sits under in the safety net, so they have the benefit of that, which is terrific. Mm. Um, so that was, and you know, to hear that they had, you know, a meeting at the local pub to make sure that you know, everyone became invested in it. And it's interesting that, oh, okay, yes. that through those, through those, um, through those stories of struggle, often come community cohesiveness as well. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've seen that in my own community and some of the battles we've had. And it just brings communities together in a really nice way and often see a more, a brighter path. Um, in the future so that was a really nice one um, where else have I been goodness um, I always love going to my local preschools um, but at it oh, Peak Hill was another one where I walked into the service and there was just a, that was another one that's in the safety net and they, they had a day where it was two year olds and nearly all of them were Aboriginal children Right. and I just thought how good is that yeah um, so it's a sign of a preschool that's ensuring that it's meeting its community's needs. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's what I, I keep coming back to, is that every community is different. And, it, and they all, and this, the preschools have been there for so long, in most cases, that they understand exactly what their community needs and and how they can best support the children in that community and and the, and the families and parents because they are often the conduit to all sorts mm. of other supports and mm. services and um, and so they I guess that's what I'm seeing with the start strong funding that it's so prescriptive and complicated that you some you know you need an actuary to be able to work out exactly what you might get at the end of the day, um, and goodness knows no service can afford an actuary. Um, so, what's missing in that mix is that flexibility for a service to be able to offer what they know their community needs, mm-hmm. and I keep seeing and hearing that around the place. Mm-hmm. So, that is something that's high in my mind when I'm looking at policy for our side of mm. the fence? Because we were talking earlier um, about challenges in your electorate, for example, the sort of challenges that you that your community faces in a whole um, range of ways. Mm. Do you see that there's a, something in the future of... I mean, you're talking about preschools being the, and early childhood settings being the fabric of the community, mm. effectively. Mm. Do you think there are opportunities up ahead to assist with addressing some of those broader issues that could actually attract some money as well for early childhood settings? Yeah, I'd like to think so. Yeah. I mean, I get so frustrated when I, you know, we're, we're building, I think we're going to double capacity of a, of a prison at Cessnock. Mm. And you just go, <laughs> could we actually get some more supports on the ground? Mm. Like, they, I just find it so frustrating. And, and... And early childhood ed has to be in that space. And it was heartening over the weekend and, you know, we all come away from conference with this buoyed sense of, you know, of a mission that we're now on. And, and Bill Shorten has sort of lined us up. So we're, 
our, our main priority is tackling inequality. And you just go, that's exactly what mm. we should always be doing. And whether that's through um, you know, marriage equality, <laughs> wouldn't that be good? Um, so, but, but I see early childhood education as being, you know, the, the whole, I think I would put it, you know, the elixir to equality. This is, you know, it's a real key to reducing that gap mm. and, and arguably the reliance on some of those other services down the track, like prisons and everything. So, and, and, I, and I spoke at conference that there is, the inequality is huge. And particularly in the regions, like it's not just the city regional divide, mm. it's within the regions and within within my own electorate, there's enormous differences in um, capacity and socioeconomic levels and access to health, access to education is all really still a huge issue. And so creating pathways to preschools and create, I mean, ensuring that the preschools have got the support that they need to be able to prepare our kids and give them the education they need when they need it most is critical mm. but the pathways as well are really important and play groups I think play an enormous role mm. in that yeah. um, and I would like to see that having more of a, um, a role in the space and more of an acknowledgement as well mm. because you know there is a lot of educating to happen as well within communities that this that this early ed is really important, and the and the play groups offer such a good pathway into the more formal structured learning, mm. particularly for um, Aboriginal families, and the frustrations that we're seeing, and I've just lost a, a, a good provider, is services that are kicking goals and helping that and being a pathway are losing funding. I don't know it's just it, it's it just it, it's gobsmacking that they could be losing funding at a time when you know closing the gap is something that we should that you know was a catch cry that gap is just getting wider mm. from what we're seeing mm. and it's not being helped by a lot of these good providers losing funding and that's in that's in the health space as well as yeah um, right. early ed space and 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 God forbid groups that actually try and straddle the two. <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Everything seems... Which we are seeing more of in, in early childhood settings as they're broadening their their own scope and capacity mm. as well and doing an amazing job in the mm. community and, and in terms of integrated services. Yes. But it's almost like it's got to be on a service-by-service service basis, hasn't it, which is too challenging in terms yes. of, of managing yeah. that kind of implementation. Absolutely. And I've... I've been to an amazing service um, down in Toronto that was um, funded under Closing the Gap mm. and they have all the offerings under the one roof, that, which is just amazing in terms of long day care, preschooling, um, DV counselling services, health services, um, a computer study room for kids coming from across the school. It is just so impressive and you just think... I want one. <laughs> I want one in every everywhere. community. Wants one. Every community. <laughs> we wants all one. want one because you can see because you can see it would make a difference, yeah. and it is making a difference. Mm, so yeah. Um. So in the, I mean, I know you can't sort of commit to these um, 
you know, to, to exactly what Labor would do. But if you had the best world scenario <laughs> and, uh, you know, you, within obvious, some, obviously some financial limitations, what would you see as being the, the great, you know, outcome in terms of what you would deliver in early childhood? <laughs> Ooh, you're cleverly in. <laughs> <laughs> Not really, it's just the question every early child asks. Um, so I think where I where the conversation needs to be is, and I'm not trying to avoid your question and play the politician of circumlocution so we'd never have to answer the question. I think what we would what I would like to see is what do we want to what do we want to look it to look like at the end of the day. So what is our everyone's ideal scenario for early childhood ed? And and how do we get there? So my end scenario is threes and fours funded mm. and accessible, fully funded. So that we've you know everyone can go and three and I I acknowledge hugely the importance of threes in the space um, so and and everyone says it everywhere you, mm. you can't ignore it and it's for good reason and having had a fair bit of work with disability sector as well um, yeah we just it's so important for so many reasons so that's that's an end goal how we get there and how long it takes us to get there that's not something I, I'm able to mm able to answer, but I know it's something that I'm going to be arguing the case for. And, you know, that's, I always, I always bring my lawyering <laughs> into everything. I think, right, what evidence do I need to put on the table to argue this case? Mm -hmm. And that's what, that's my role. And within my own, within my own party, in terms of policy formulation, that's where I've got to be. To assist with those competing priorities that there are so many of. Correct. Yes. And it's and I mean I guess I'd ask you to put in there the quality aspect as well. Oh indeed. It can't just be uh, that yes. availability, it's gotta be that high quality and, and um Absolutely. Yeah, it's an essential component yes. of the, the whole yes. picture. So if people wanted to put forward um their thinking to you, are you mm. open to mm. to ideas and um and Always. Great. Always. We'll give them your, um, we'll yeah. give them your contact details. <laughs> Please do. Yeah. Um, and um, if yeah, and anyone can get those on my Facebook page as well. Mm. And and uh, they can contact my office, email me, do whatever. Because I'm really keen to visit more services and to speak to more providers all around the all around the state. Because mm. as I said, every community's really different, mm. and it's really it. it and every time I think I couldn't necessarily, you, you sometimes think, oh, there's not going to be anything new I could learn from going to a service that's quite similar to something mm. else I've already been to. Every time I step into another service, I learn something. Mm. Mm. There's nothing, everyone does things a bit differently and all the, um, all the workers just have so many years of experience and so much knowledge, passion, commitment. I mean, they wouldn't be there in the pay that they get if they didn't have that. So <laughs> so that's something else you've got to address is pay. It's, but you've got a, a very long, well, long yeah. list. Of... <laughs> and that's, and that not only, I mean, that's frustrating in terms of um, 
women's pay gap generally, but it's playing out front and centre in the early childhood ed space. And uh, it's something that has to be addressed. Mm. And I remember when I spoke on that in Parliament and the then Education Minister Pickley was in the, uh, actually at the, at the um, uh, dispatch box opposite me. And I, and, I, and I raised it and he just said, well, are you going to fund it? Are you going to fund it on the other side? And I thought, well, should we just not talk about it and it'll magically go away? Yeah. It's got to, we've got to talk about it. Well, it does. And I think that... We've got to do more than talk well, about it. Well, that's right. And all of the evidence that we're seeing and, and all of the, the you know, international reporting is showing that we're slipping behind in mm. all sorts of ways mm. um, in early childhood education. And it really is time that we kind of move the rhetoric from this mm-hmm. action um, mm. if we... You know, if we actually want to be seen as a um, as a a country that cares about children and and cares about its future, so, absolutely, because yeah. it, this is actually about our our national strength mm. going forward. How do we want to be a strong, educated country, mm. or not? And it starts in early ed. Mm. Like that's if you know we talk about you know Malcolm Turnbull might talk about an innovation nation. You can't do it if you haven't got people that aren't. <laughs> aren't capable of and, and uh, of picking up the education where it needs to be. Yeah. If they if they start their education behind the eight ball because they've been able to access early ed, like mm. we're not going to be that country that everyone's talking about unless we do start turning, turning or putting more emphasis and funding into early ed. It comes down to funding. Well, that is a great way to finish. <laughs> Simply put, that was beautiful. Thank you very much, Kate, and thank you for talking to the Early Education Show today. Absolute pleasure. All right, we're back, and thanks to Kate Washington for spending some time after what sounded like a pretty hectic conference to to sit down and chat with Leanne. I think we're always a bit surprised that these pollies are willing to come and uh, spend a bit of time chatting with us but we hope they're we hope they're enjoyable they're very to all generous the listeners. They are. Time, which i think we we appreciate across you know all all spectrums of uh, politics so it is it's it's a yeah. great um great thing that they do we do appreciate that very much appreciated but we'll do our recommendations for the week and uh, leanne we are going to bring us the first one what have you got for us uh, this one is a conversation article. I'm very glad to be back in the back in my comfortable place with conversation <laughs> <Okay>. articles. <laughs> and this is uh, about the full day um, kindergarten program that is running in um, Ontario in Canada. And of course, I guess I jumped onto this one because it was another article that was telling us about the value of early childhood education. So I was all kind of fully prepared to go in there and be cynical again. But it's actually a very interesting article and um, I commend it to people for a couple of reasons because it is um, that Ontario has committed significant funds to this for two years of early childhood education full day with the consideration around what it is, what the benefits are for children, what the benefits are for families. But one of the things that I loved about this is that they've done some of their research with the children to consider what the impact is um, on the children of a full day program. So they did some uh, research uh, inquiring with the children their thinking and their feelings of full day kindergarten and what the benefits were for them. 
and it's interesting because they did they did come up with um, the fact that for them in the full day program, children felt that the benefits were play and <laughs> play based programs. Yeah, whereas the the children who are in half day programs thought differently. So I'll I'll just commend that article to have a look at it. But they did manage to capture children's voices as a component of the research. That's and great. of course, they have found out that full day kindergarten for two years before school is very beneficial, and the effects last uh, right through to grade two. And my thinking then would be okay. So then keep it going keep that that great stuff going for children beyond grade two wonderful thanks leanne lisa what are you sharing with everyone this week look i'm sharing something quite practical with people which is the guidelines that the department have put out for the community child care fund now the community child care fund as people may remember is that bundle of money that's part of the safety net under the jobs for families package um and what it is it's a total of 124 million which if that sounds like a familiar figure it's actually because it's two million dollars more than what it's going to cost for a postal vote on um marriage (laughs) equality but this is over four years, whereas the postal vote will only take a few months, apparently. So, yeah, so we spend less on children than we do asking people what politicians should already know. That but, is so funny because all week I've been doing exactly that calculation. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, uh, uh, basically, the three things, the, no, there's millions of things you need to know about this. One of the most important ones is that funding opens on the, you'll get to start submitting your applications on the 23rd of August. It closes on the 5th of October. So it's six weeks you've got to write your applications. But it doesn't, you won't actually get the funding till July 2nd of next year. Um, the average amount, I'm doing a super summary here of what the funding's about. The average amount of funding that you'll get is between ten and 200000 and you'll get a grant for one to three years, right? But essentially it's designed to for those services that, um, like there's different, yeah, there's different parts of the, the funding, but the funding that most people will be able to apply for is the $50 million, which is for um, open competitive grants. So if you go, okay, there's $50 million and there's however many childcare services there are across Australia, oh, that's not much money for each service, if in fact any money for each service. For most services, um, what you'll be able to apply for is sustainability support, and that's for those services that are in areas where there's, um, uh, like, not many other services and you really can't exist without that additional funding. The the, um, restricted non-competitive funding which is for bbf services is even more restricted than what we thought it would be but yeah um i don't know if i'm making any sense here but essentially i suppose what i'm saying is 
you've got to start reading these guidelines. You've got to think about whether or not you can apply for this funding. You've got to start writing, you know, your application as soon as you can. But really, you know, um, there's not a lot of money there and it's not how it was initially presented in the, the government's um, uh, outlines of the job for families package. It's going to be really just for those services where a market can't be sustained. Um, the, one of the interesting things about it is that initially it was just for not-for-profit services. Now it's for not-for-profit and for-profit services. But ah. essentially the way they describe it is that, you know, like you'd have to be really hard-pressed as a for-profit service to get it. Because if you and a not-for-profit service has an equal case, then the not-for-profit service will get it. So, of course, the for-profit provider peak organisations are claiming it as a victory that they've managed to get, you know, their members into this funding. But in reality, I don't, I'd be very surprised if any um, for-profit provider actually got it. But... Yeah, um, the funding can be used to either implement changes to business practices to make your service viable or to help with additional costs of providing childcare if you're in an unviable market or to meet um, standard operating expenses during transition to a more sustainable business model. So it's all short-term stuff until the market can take care of childcare <laughs> all by itself. That magical oh, day. Can't we? We're excited about that day, aren't we? <laughs> any any decade now, it'll be happening. <coughs> mm. All right, thanks, Lisa. Uh, we'll obviously have the link to that so people can start uh, start perusing that and getting their applications in if they are eligible. Uh, just quickly, my one is a link to a speech by Megan Mitchell, who's the National Commissioner for Children in Australia. Oh, yay. yay! Yay! And it's always important to remember that Megan's still around um, and doing fantastic things for, for children's rights. And this speech um, is within the framework of a, a pretty obviously a uh, horrible topic of youth suicide and it is more focused I think on the older age range but uh, she talks really uh, succinctly and, and clearly about children's rights and the need to uh, engage children in discussions about um, their lives and uh, and it could absolutely be applied um, to to early childhood services as well and particularly the, I think a strong thing for early childhood uh, people to to read is the the bit where she talks about child safe organisations and then the importance of that and and some work that's being done in a national context to um, provide some principles and frameworks around that. So um, it's a bit of a long, it's a bit long, and but it's it, but it's definitely worth reading. And and uh, thanks again to Megan Mitchell. We've got to get on the podcast one day. One of us has got to get on to it. We've had her on the podcast. Oh, that's true. You did do a quick interview. We got to do a bit of a longer one and get some more on it. One day, I'd like a long a long one. Yeah. We need to. You, you did very well, Lisa. I think Thank we you have. For we have revisited some of our original interviews, shorter interviews. So people yeah. are just busting to get on this show. Obviously, so, yeah. You know, obviously. Get in, get in line, <laughs> Megan. Get in line. Um, and then before we wrapped up the recommendations this week, we wanted to do. Uh, this feels like a bit of like an early early education show editorial or something. But we wanted to do a joint recommendation for for everyone. <laughs> so, as Lisa referred to to early, as we record this on a Wednesday night, the 
the government has confirmed they're going to be moving ahead with a non-voluntary, non-legislated, non-useful in any context, uh, except yeah, non non upholding of people's rights to you know live um, postal plebiscite on same sex marriage. So Not just to live, to love, to live and love. Yes, can't. Yeah, all we need is love, but. Our recommendation is if uh, is to head to uh, check.aec sorry check.aec.gov.au to confirm that you're on the electoral roll and are eligible uh, to vote in this in this plebiscite. Not something we should have to do. This I means politicians should be doing their jobs. But given it's happening, we obviously want it to to win. Um, it's also important to remember that around uh, based on the 2013 early childhood workforce census, which is the most recent data we have, around 18% of the early childhood sector is between uh, 19 and 24. Uh, so they're obviously the group most likely to be either to be not enrolled or also not likely to vote in postal votes. Uh, and obviously, you know, generalising broadly, but also that's probably the cohort most likely to support same-sex marriage and think it's probably fairly insane that we even have to vote on it. So uh, I guess, you know, either obviously for yourself, just to check if you're listening to this, to check that you're eligible. But if you're in a position in an in a, in a early childhood or middle school care service where you're where you're in a position to, to you know to send out you know big emails to everyone is maybe is maybe do that make sure that everyone who's working in the organisation you're with or your community networks or your preschool or whatever uh, does the same thing because um, yeah I think that's obviously something that people should be getting involved in whether it's stupid or not and it is stupid. Yeah, and in in the absence of that money being spent on something more reasonable like early childhood education, make sure you spend your have the government spend your dollar wisely regardless of how stupid it is exactly um so that's it for another episode we do have as i promised right at the start we have a bit of a fun and exciting announcement we have our first competition for the early childhood education show so as was sort of uh, previewed uh last week lisa bryant and red ruby scarlet have written a book called fairs fair a guide to anti-bias in early childhood or sorry in education and care services obviously including early childhood and middle childhood uh, lisa has kindly very very kindly donated has agreed to donate a copy of the book to one lucky listener of the early education show so there's a couple of ways we can you can uh, enter this competition if you head to earlyeducationshow.com forward slash fairs fair you'll find a link that sort of talks through the the competition but mostly what you need to do is either go on facebook or twitter if you go on facebook uh, there'll be a post which will have uh, info about the competition and a lovely photo of lisa and ruby uh, red ruby holding the book um, all you need to do is share that Share that photo uh, and then um, uh, just write uh, what we, where, where you, which service you're, you're, you, you work in. Um, and po- if possible, include a photo of yourself and the service you work at. Um, if you don't work directly in a service, um, be creative. Either maybe include one you visit regularly or just where you listen to the podcast. We, the idea is that this will just sort of uh, connect some more people on the show. Uh, and then if you're on Twitter, just do the same thing. You can either just reply to the tweet, which we'll, include the, which, uh, to, which we'll link to in the podcast, um, or quote the tweet and just tell us where you're from and that you're, you're entering competition. I hope that makes some kind of sense. It will make sense. Once the episode drops, you'll be able to go to, to Facebook and Twitter. <laughs> I have and, to say, I'm, I'm a bit confused at this stage myself, Liam, Seems so simple. I'm sure it will make perfect sense. Look, we will accept anything as an entry, basically, at this point. Yeah, but, that's you know, right. But share, right. share, <laughs> the, share the but short version, share the post on Facebook, share the post on Twitter, uh, and that'll be your entry. And uh, we're, we're 
we'll be announcing the winner of that in two episodes time so episode 42 so we'll give people a couple of weeks to 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 enter for that but um thanks again lisa for donating one of your one of your copies anytime anything to get publicity for the book exciting um so that's it for another week so we will we'll wrap up as as we've just said you can find the show at earlyeducationshow.com you can also find us on twitter and facebook uh, both of those are at early edu show uh you can find all three of us individually on twitter i'm at leah McNicholas. i'm at lisa j bryant and i'm at leanne m gibbs three uh, and I feel like I've forgotten something. I normally mention the outro, but uh, my voice is about to pass out, so we're going to have to leave it there. So thanks for listening to another week. Uh, make sure you get into the to the competition. We'd love to, to A, hear where, where people are listening and, and, and see some great examples of services, but we're also obviously keen to, to get someone a copy of that book. So until next week, it's bye from me. And from me. And from me. <laughs> <laughs>